Hello, welcome back to the David Watson podcast. Today, I had the great pleasure of talking with Sydney Lee, poet whose life has spanned 81 years. And we've discussed life, I guess. I'm not sure what else to say. I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I enjoyed talking to Sydney. Hello, welcome to the David Watson podcast. Thank you for joining me. And so I've been asked to, or I've asked uh, for you to come on and we're going to talk about your 23rd book. But before that, before we started recording, you were telling me about when you were in my neck of the woods, Salisbury, Stonehenge, and you, you have done a little bit of Europe. How do you kind of find that history and that architecture? Well, it's you know I I remember my my father uh, was briefly in the export import business, and when I was ten years old, thank heavens, he pulled me out of school and we took a tour of Europe. And I remember just being absolutely agape to see these things that were so ancient. Uh, and I find, unfortunately, in the era of social media and so on and so forth, when I first took my children there. Um, we spent uh, the better part of a year in 1988 in, uh, in uh, Tuscany. Uh, I had a Guggenheim Fellowship and uh, they were impressed, but not nearly the same way that I, I was. They'd seen it all, you know, yeah. on their screen or whatever it might be. But uh, yes, and, uh, and I've, I've gone back I, in the old days in the, in the, uh, uh, 60s. I, I, I spent a lot of time in in France, uh, and uh, and then uh, my my late and wonderful uh, grandfather-in-law, who was a, a, a Italian immigrant, uh, said that if we didn't go to Italy on our honeymoon, that he wasn't coming to the wedding. So uh, we went, and uh, I was much uh, taken by what I. I saw, I think, in some respects, uh, naively as one does, but uh, I, I liked it enough that I took it upon myself to learn uh, Italian. And then we spent also uh, the better part of a year in Budapest. That was another fellowship. And that was a language that was said to hum humble me. I, I, put on my, I put on my application, oh, I'm good with languages. I'll, I'll study Hungarian before I, I come over. And... Uh, I called a dear friend of mine, uh, he, he's dead since, uh, who was a professor of Slavic languages at Dartmouth College, where I was teaching at the time. And he, uh, he spoke 19 languages, uh, including Jeez. Turkish. And I said, who's going to teach me Hungarian, Walter? He said, no one on earth. <laughs> <laughs> said, well, certainly you tried. And he said, yes, I did try. It was much too hard. And I said, well, I, I think I'm sentenced to a year of mutinous. <laughs> uh, wow. But, how do, how, do, how yeah, does somebody learn 19 languages? I, he was uh, one of those uh, Jews who was chased all over Europe. Uh, yeah. And he just had an ear for them. Uh, but he was also uh, Oxford educated and had studied languages there. Uh, he's, his native language was German. Uh, he... Uh, I'm not really exactly sure when he took up the study of Slavic languages, I presume quite young, uh, but I think he spoke most of those. He spoke strange things like Danish uh, yeah. and uh, what have you. He's just a man that had an extraordinary ear. Wow. Wow. 
Yeah. Um, when you you said to me, and I'm sorry, I'm going to go. I'm going to go off track completely here. You, you said to me about um, when you was a child because your dad was in the import export business. He pulled you out of school and, and took you travelling with him. How old were you? I was uh, ten. I was ten. It was 1953, and amongst other things, I remember very acutely was going to the. Uh, uh, to, to the uh, Omaha Beach, Normandy, where he, he was he was charged with what was then called a company of quote colored troops in the old segregated army. Yeah, lost a lot of men, lost a lot of men there, and he was a a, a, a a very genial man, but tended to be unlike me, understated. And uh, I noticed he was becoming more and more animated as we approached the site. And then to my absolute horror, he let go a great projectile vomit over the edge uh, of the cliff. And I, I remember thinking, what's, what's wrong with that? Something terrible. He said, well, I lost a lot of men here. And I said, well, that was eight years ago, for heaven's sake. Uh, aren't you over, over yeah. yet? So I thought as a 10-year-old. Uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, well, that was my first exposure to Europe. But we went, I, we landed in Bremerhaven, I think, and then we went to Luxembourg, we went to Belgium, we went to France, we went to Spain, uh, went to England. I, 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 think, I think that exhausts uh, the list. And we weren't long in any of those places. But, uh, but it must have been an incredible adventure for a 10-year-old. Oh, it was an amazing adventure. I mean, I was delighted, and I was delighted, amongst other things, to have my uh, father's exclusive attention. At that time, I was one of three brothers. Uh, later along, two sisters came, but uh, I, 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 I was very happy, happy to be solo with Dad. Yeah. So the book, the, something that intrigues me is the title, What Shines About. Uh-huh. Well, it's, um, you know, I, I write these things without thinking much about what they're about until they're over. But uh, as I look, uh, as I went to make this uh, connection uh, amongst the various poems to, to make what the French would call a well-made book, or so I hoped, uh, I, uh, I noticed that one of, the, one of the recurring interests in the book was how you know i'm 81 years old now pinch me but uh the difference in how i regarded things when i first experienced them from early childhood the young manhood and the way i look back on them now there's a, a different uh, uh, perspective and what shines um i had a my mother was quite a wonderful woman in many ways but unfortunately she had substance abuse problems which made life complex uh, she did the best she could. Uh, she was never able to recover, but uh, she lived an astonishing long uh, life given how much uh, she put into her frame. Uh, and uh, when I, I wanted to look back and see amongst all the complexities and difficulties of our relationship, what shines. That was, the, that was what uh, motivated that poem. Uh, uh, as I say, as I look back on it, that's what, that seems to be the underlying uh, impulse. And there were things uh, uh, 
obviously. Uh, and she, she made a great effort in many ways, but uh, that's, a, that's a nasty ailment. Yeah, yeah, very, very. Um, so taking that, and, and this is a, a kind of cliche, cliche question, but it will lead into another one as well. What would you tell your younger self if it was possible? Oh, <laughs> that's a, that's a, a a very very uh, good question. I I I I think uh, I suppose if I've learned any life lessons there are a couple that occur to me one is that every time you think there's a simple answer to a situation there's not and uh, the other is that not every situation that puts you under some kind of duress is a crisis that will alter your life forever yeah. <laughs> uh, these things pass and you move on but i i just remember being quite depressed sometimes as a, a, a as a rather young boy uh thinking well i'll you know i'll never amount to much uh my my poor mom she had uh, was a very bright very bright woman and uh, she was prepared to go to university but uh, her father had died when she was only five and uh, her bachelor uncle who became the paterfamilias simply said women don't go to college yeah. And uh, so I, as the firstborn, became her vicar, I think, to some degree. And she was forever saying, apply yourself. Well, I did pretty well in school, but it was never quite uh, good enough. And one internalizes that, you know, uh, gee, I'll never amount to anything uh, because I, and how can I apply myself more? Well, it turns out that, <laughs> turns out that I can't. And it turns out, actually, in retrospect, that I've applied myself pretty assiduously for a long, long time to uh, those things which I found uh, important, uh, teaching, writing, uh, fatherhood, and now, uh, praise be, grandfatherhood, seven times over, about to be eight. Uh, Congratulations. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when one is young, uh, everything seems like the, or at least it did to me, it often... There were situations where I thought, well, that's the end of the end of the world, including, of course, a requisite uh, breakup with the love of your life without whom you couldn't live uh, at 16. And here I am, 81. So it seems I survived. Which actually leads nicely into my next question. It's imagine your younger self at a certain stage. What poem or how would your younger self write? write something for you to read today something that uh, reflects my attitude at a certain at a certain age uh and uh yeah no, but like your younger yeah, self i only whose complexity i recognize as an older person let me think oh i i, I know one uh bear with me while i find it um when uh, I think in about the same year that uh, uh, I, uh, I went to Europe with my dad, uh, my grandmother, whose house we lived in, uh, she'd been born there as my mother was, uh, had bought uh, what we called a hi-fi back in those days, which uh, was a step up from the desktop phonograph, Victrola or whatever. And uh, it was... Uh, uh, she bought it because she was allegedly a lover of classical music, 
But what she mostly did would be put on some symphony and then fall immediately asleep. That's what she did at the symphony hall uh, often enough. Um, but uh, that hi-fi, I remember that very vividly. I remember it's being turned on for the first time, at least in my presence. And uh, it involved both my parents and uh, it's just called hi-fi. I think both little sisters were still too young for school. We brothers not many years older. I suspect that what I say is more than a bit sentimental and may not have a basis in anything real back then. So be it, but let me keep it. The five of us hearing the tune, the strings and horns so alive. It's good to be where we are near our parents' new hi-fi, which spills into every corner. The fidelity, almost shocking. They've told us about its wonders, and now at last they own one. Having adjusted some knob, they stand stone still for a moment, as if in a sort of trance. Of course, they're both long gone, so of course they no longer dance, cheeks touching or anyhow. But as long as I say so, they do. Indeed, the song I hear now is precisely cheek to cheek. Now, why would anyone talk about swimming in a river or a creek, or maybe it's actually fishing? Who cares? Strange bliss pours forth as long as the record keeps spinning. Sickness, regret, and death will all arrive in time. And rancor, I won't forget the rancor. This evening, however, we brothers and sisters watch, enchanted, five children together on the couch with the fancy lace while our faithful parents glide in what looks like a fond embrace. That's really nice. There's about so, something stood it. There were so many things that stood out on that for me as I was listening because there's the observation that you don't often see adults excited about something when you're a child. And and then there's the, because the music is playing and they're dancing and there's that child confusion listening to the songs like, why are, we, why are you obsessed with this creek, this water? <laughs> and then there's the romance of the parents dancing at the same time, you know. And there's so many levels to it. That uh, poem was published in uh, The Atlantic, which is a fairly widely circulated uh, American magazine. And uh, to my surprise and pleasure, uh, a woman uh, wrote me an email. She found my address on my website, I suppose, and, uh, and uh, said that she'd really enjoyed the poem. Uh, her grandfather had written it. Uh, Irving Berlin had written the song, and uh, so it had a special resonance for her. That was oh, a novel what? experience for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that would be massive, wouldn't it, to have the you know a, a relative reach out and say, you know, that my grandfather wrote yeah. that wrote that song. Oh, that's yeah. that's a, that's a nice coming together of of two pieces of art. It is, yes, indeed. So, on the theme of your mum always telling you to apply yourself, and 
this is your twenty third book. In the in the period of time of writing those twenty three books, what stands out? Well, um, I, I'll tell you what stands out was a, a happy accident, which at first looked like misfortune. I um, I was teaching at Dartmouth College at the time, and I was up for academic tenure. And back in those days, as today, uh, there was that saying, publish or perish. And uh, uh, in those days, it meant only that uh, one had to publish a few essays that no one would read and put them in prominent erudite places. And that would, uh, that would make the cut. Nowadays, it's a book. But uh, I, uh, I, the, I told the, the chairman that I had a book of poems under contract. And, he said, well, you know, that's not real publishing. We don't count that as real publishing. So I liked where I was. I had small children, uh, one of whom was in uh, first grade, I think, at the time. Uh, so I wanted to stay. And uh, so I took my dissertation that I'd done for my doctorate at Yale. Uh, 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 a volume which is inscrutable to anyone, including his author. I came under the, uh, under the influence of the so-called theorists, and theory and I don't get along that well. But at any rate, I said, well, it, and it, it just was very, very difficult for me to finish it. Finally, I did, and a year later, this thing came up, and I said, well, I'll just go plumb a few chapters out of uh, my dissertation to, uh, uh, to publish somewhere, and maybe that will, uh, that will help me. So I went over to the uh, library and I went into the reference room, which I'd like uh, to use uh, uh, for whatever contemplation I was capable of because there was almost never anybody there except for the very, very stern doyen of that particular room whose name was, and I didn't make this up and neither did Charles Dickens. Her name was Miss Wormwood. And uh, I... Uh, I looked into that dissertation and I swear I had a feeling very like vertigo. And I said aloud, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. She looked at me sternly, said she, it was only she and I in the room. And so I closed uh, the dissertation. I said, well, I'm just going to keep on writing poetry and let the chips fall where they might. And I did not get tenure. Uh, I was given a year uh, in which to find a new job. I'd continue to teach. And the chairman of the department, the one preceding had been a, a great friend of mine, remained so until he died. But the one succeeding didn't like me very much. And, I, and the feeling was reciprocated. We'd never had a confrontation, but it was quite clear that we rubbed each other the wrong way. And I think uh, he took advantage of that year to assign me the most pedestrian and boring and time-consuming teaching schedule I could possibly have. All freshmen, uh, first-year students, uh, you know, uh, their weekly themes, you know, 70 of them at a clip or whatever it might be. So I, uh, I saw this and I said, well, I, it was in summertime. And I, I said, well, I'll, uh, I'll drive down and talk to this gent. And... <laughs> Uh, it, and I, all the way in, I said, uh, I, you know, be moderate, you know, uh, don't lose your temper or whatever. 
Well, within 10 minutes of talking with this gent, I said, you know, I'm not going to teach those courses. He said, well, you are going to teach those courses. They're the ones I've assigned you. And I said, no, I'm not. Because I'm never stepping foot in this building again. And I'm not proud of this, but I said, furthermore, if you're walking in the streets downtown, be looking over your shoulder. <laughs> I really don't like you at all. And so I got in my car and I was driving home and I said, what in the world? What have you done? <laughs> what are you going to do? And uh, to prove that uh, there's, there's a God looking over my life, I, I was walking up the steps uh, to our house and the phone was ringing. And it was a man from Middlebury College, which is also a, a well-regarded liberal arts college here. And uh, they had a, uh, a staff member, a very nice man, I knew him. Uh, he was actually a, a, a young novelist who had some terrible, rare blood disease, and they were, he was not gonna be able to teach that year. Subsequently, he died of this disease, alas. Uh, and he said, well, will you step in and take over his courses? And I said, well, yes, I'd be glad to do that. <laughs> and uh, I stayed there for like, I think, 29 years. So uh, it just worked out very, very, very conveniently for me. Yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it, how um, people can bring out the, uh, the best in you? <laughs> yes, it's true. I... You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm circling back to that earlier question. You know, what would I tell my, my younger self? And I, I you know, I, 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 I come from a comfortable middle-class background and so on. So this doesn't apply to some poor bloke who's trying to scratch out a living mining in Wales or whatever it might be. But uh, I would say to myself, you know, uh, don't do what you should do, according to others do what you're impelled to do from within. Because every time I've done that, every time I've taken the leap, it's worked out well for me. And that was uh, just one example uh, right there that I gave you, a, a rather dramatic example in my career, if the truth be known. Middlebury College had a longer tradition, thanks in part to the proximity of Robert Frost, uh, of, uh, of teacher, professors who were also uh, so-called, I don't like the term, but so-called creative writers. So, uh, I yeah. Think what, what is it about the term you don't like? I don't know. It just seems to me that there's as much creativity in a good soup as there is in writing a, a, a poem. I have something about the word now. And now there's a, there's a term that I refuse to use. Uh, I, I've just published a book of uh, personal essays. That's, I think, my fifth. Uh, such book, and uh, there's, there's uh, people uh, use this generic term creative nonfiction. It drives me nuts. I mean, that's just an awful. That's something made up by a, I don't know what. <laughs> uh, at any rate, uh, so uh, I, I actually these are personal essays. They're not creative nonfiction. They're, they're nonfiction, but uh, all they are accounts of how I regard things you know on a given day yeah because i mean creative non-fiction doesn't even make sense no it's just it's just awful <laughs> yeah uh, i won't i won't use it i i won't use it and i if i publish in magazines and they show me a contributor's note which uses the term i immediately object and uh, say no i don't want to use that i don't yeah. want to connect 
that was my name. I have the same feeling when I see companies talk about an, an holistic approach to work-life balance or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's another much abused holistic. Yeah. yeah. As soon as I see holistic, I was just like, I start to tear up. And it's time to walk. Because because it, it turns up in like business pamphlets and adverts. Oh, yeah. and, you know, and, and, and there's nothing holistic about working 42 hours a week for a company. <laughs> no, I quite agree. Even if the company sells holistic products. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're still going to be shelf stacking or working in the warehouse. It's not holistic. Yeah. No matter how many scented candles you shifted that week. <laughs> well said. <laughs> and I, I've coached over the years, I've coached some business clients and they've used that term in their literature. And I, I'll ask them, what does holistic mean? And it just glaze over. And it's just like... <laughs> Deer in the headlights, yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, 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 this. Um, I, w I wanted to ask you about the uh, the, the Pulitzer Prize. W what is it exactly? Because I, I know the name and I, I know it as a an institution, if you like. But I realised upon reading the bio, so actually, I don't know what it is really. It's just yeah. a name that's put well, out there. Joseph Pulitzer was a journalist. Uh, uh, very successful. I think he was a newspaper owner. I should know more about this than I do. Anyway, he established uh, a uh, left a lot of money uh, for these for these prizes, uh, uh, and uh, they go across various disciplines. There's a Pulitzer Prize for fiction, for for uh, drama, for poetry, uh, uh, for journalism, on and on. And uh, the Pulitzer Prize is one of two American prizes, which is regarded as sort of a, the, the feather in your cap. Yeah. One is Pulitzer Prize, the other is called the National Book Award. Uh, and uh, I, was, uh, I was one of three finalists for the Pulitzer Prize back, back a while. And uh, uh, people say, well, you came so close next time. But the thing is that the, the, the judges, revolved from year to year so uh I, I haven't had a knock on the door since uh i've had other distinctions that i'm uh I, i'm proud enough of like being my state's poet laureate and receiving their highest arts award which is called the governor's award for excellence in the arts uh which doesn't sound like much because uh vermont is such a tiny state and yet it has more it has more poets and novelists per capita than any other in the nation. Uh, oh, I didn't wow. know that until, until yeah. the Arts Council broadcast this. So, uh, so I have some good competition. And I don't, you know, th that I became Poet Laureate did not make me all of a sudden think, well, I'm the best poet in Vermont. I, I could think of a dozen people to whom it could have gone. But uh, it, I, I received that distinction at a very timely moment in my life because I had just retired from teaching. I'd been teaching in a back at Dartmouth in a graduate program for about 10 years. And I was, uh, I had announced my retirement. I was 67 years old. And, uh, and uh, the last of our five children had decamped for college. Uh, so uh, 
the days looked like they were going to be pretty long. And uh, when I got that award, you're not under any obligation to do anything. My predecessor, a wonderful poet named Ruth Ellen, was legally blind, so she didn't get out much. But uh, I decided I was going to uh, visit community libraries uh, around the state uh, to get away from the universities and the libraries, I mean, uh, the institutional libraries, and just go to these small community libraries uh, uh, where presumably whoever showed up liked books. They didn't necessarily like poetry, but they might be curious. And I didn't go to read my own material. I did read some, but for the most part, I, I said about uh, explaining from my perspective what I thought poetry could accomplish that other modes of discourse could not. Uh, and uh, I don't know, it, it didn't really surprise me because I'm old enough to have learned this lesson that all the smart people are not within the university walls by a long, long shot. And there were bright people everywhere I went. My favorite moment, I went to a town way up north in the state, right on the Quebec border. And uh, a gent walked in who, uh, he was in bib overalls and he smelled of the barn. He was clearly not some refugee stockbroker who was pretending to be a, a farmer or whatever. And he sat there and he had a book in his lap. And uh, when it was over, he came up and he said, I really enjoyed what you had to say. And I said, what's the book anyway? He said, well, this is, uh, uh, it's uh, Mountain Interval by Robert Frost. And I said, oh, I like that volume very much. And he said, how many poems can you say out of it? And I puffed myself up and I said, I bet I could recite three or four. He said, I can say them all. Said, Frost used to say, I say my poetry rather than I read. So I tested him, and I didn't test him on things like stopping by woods on a snowy evening or any of the famous ones, but ones that I'd scarcely heard of myself, like the, the, the gum gatherer or whatever. And I gave him two or three, and he never missed a beat. And I said, well, how is it that you, you're able to do this? And he said, well, my dad had a farm that abutted Frost property down in Ripton, Vermont, and they became friends. And... Uh, he gave my dad a copy of his books, and uh, every night he would read them aloud to us as children. And uh, I, I became hooked on Robert Frost, and uh, uh, I've read him and reread him ever since. I said, do you read other poets? He said, no, just, just Frost. <laughs> but uh, that, was a, that was a really interesting moment, uh, uh, a surprising one and a gratifying one. Yeah, that, that's... It's it's funny, isn't it? Because poetry, I don't know that. I t I nearly said it. If that is fallen out of fashion, but I think that's a disservice. I think it's just poetry. Maybe once upon a time, because there weren't the distractions of radio, TV, and the internet, it it, it was both something that children could listen to and discover as well as parents could be intellectual about and and yes. and that's true. yes that's true and and i there's a larger audience for poetry in america than you might imagine uh and apparently it uh, spiked considerably during the height of the covid crisis yeah. which is interesting to me um 
But you know, uh, David has always been uh, a minority art, certainly in America. At any rate, we had the so-called schoolroom poets like uh, 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 Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, John Green. Uh, all of them have three names, apparently, and uh, and uh, people read them and recited them and and so on. Uh, and uh, when that wave passed, the last poet to make who, who could live on poetry alone was Frost himself. I don't yeah. think anybody else has ever made a living uh, since. And that's hence the uh, increasing connection of, of, uh, of poetry uh, or writing in general to, uh, uh, to the Academy, uh, which, uh, about which I have mixed feelings. Obviously, I, I thrived on it in my own way. Uh, but uh, I... Uh, I resist what I call creeping MFAism, uh, which is, you know, uh, uh, many, many more writers than uh, than readers. Uh, remember Flannery O'Connor saying, "Is uh, do you think that uh, teaching poetry in college discourages people from writing poetry <laughs> or, or writing or from being writers?" <laughs> Her response was, "It doesn't discourage enough of them." <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting how would how would you explain to somebody and maybe explain is the wrong wrong way of going about the question but if somebody young or old ever would like to try poetry because where would you advise them to start like if they wanted to start writing some things down that's uh, when I have my own personal prejudices. I would send them back to uh, uh, the UK's romantics. I'd send them back to Coleridge and to Keats and uh, or probably Keats is the most approachable for someone who's brand new to that uh, uh, sort of reading. Um, you know, uh, to get off on another hobby horse of mine, uh, you know, there. There are a number, I, I, I don't know every poet in the States, but I know a lot of them. Yeah. And uh, and many of them are always moaning about how they don't get enough of a readership. And they say, well, it's commercialism or it's capitalism or it's whatever it may be. And I look at some of the poetry that's being written contemporarily uh, in the New Yorker magazine or whatever. And I, I said, well, you know, if you want to be read, why don't you read some, uh, write something that's actually readable? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you shouldn't, you know, it seems odd to me that uh, if you're writing poetry and you're trying to communicate with someone, you would put so many barriers to comprehension in the way. That's one of the reasons that I, too, am a, am a uh, Frost admirer, because uh, I think he's one of the most complex poets that we've generated. Uh, and yet some... Everybody can get something out of a frost poem. They can enter the world that is being uh, described. And uh, school kids do. And then, uh, uh, you know, doctoral candidates do and critics do uh, as well. But uh, I have the feeling with a lot of poetry, there's sort of a, a barrier put up. And say, well, you have to learn a sort of special language or else you can't come into my, uh, into my world. So uh, uh, the paucity, relative paucity of uh, readership, though it's always, uh, it's always prevailed, uh, 
is exacerbated, I think, by the nature of uh, uh, of a lot of uh, contemporary practice. Because it's yeah, because that, that that's the thing about poetry, in a sense, is that, like you say, when you meet people who say they're a fan of poetry, my my own experience is is when they talk about poetry and being a fan of poetry, it almost seems like a an, an intellectual supremacy over somebody. They also, but after spending five minutes with them, you realize they could kill the mood at a funeral. And you're just like, well, it's going to be a long conversation. <laughs> you know, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a personal story. Um, we live in a very rural part of the, uh, of the state, uh, as close to uh, Quebec, uh, closer to Quebec than we are to Massachusetts. And... Uh, we had a neighbor who just died a few years ago. He was 97 when he died. Uh, and he was a wonderful neighbor. He, uh, he'd gone to school almost through eighth grade, but he, he said in the spring of eighth grade, there was such a nice day, he just couldn't face it. So he left for good and went to work in the woods. But uh, he, had, he had very few filters. You know, he yeah. would say what was on his mind, no matter what it was. And when I first met him, uh, he said, I understand you're a writer. I said, yeah. I said, well, I ain't going to read nothing you ever wrote. I can tell you that right now. I said, because all I read is Louis L'Amour. He says, once you get done reading him, you don't want to read nobody else. Uh, so I, uh, the only thing of mine I think he ever did write was a satirical little poem I did for his 70th wedding anniversary, his and his wife's. Uh, but when I sit down to write, I always have him in mind. I say, if he were to read something of mine, which he won't or wouldn't, uh, if he were able to or, or inclined to, would he just be totally mystified or would he understand sort of the general drift of where I'm going? And uh, I think that one of the, when I talk about creeping MFAism, I, I never did an MFA. I didn't, I never took a so-called creative writing course. I'm too mm -hmm. old, but uh, at all events, uh, 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 I think one of the difficulties with, uh, in, in this uh, proliferation of MFA programs and so on is that so many aspirant and beginning writers are so busy talking to people who think the way they do that uh, they imagine everybody thinks that way, yeah. which is not true, which is why I like to keep my neighbor Tink in the back of my mind, rest his memory. Uh, uh, to remind me that there, there are people out there who have thoughts and feelings and who are bright and uh, humorous and uh, uh, well-experienced, uh, and uh, uh, they're just as important as any, any uh, Don somewhere, you know. It is, because there are poems out there and, and people who write poems, and that they, they can resonate with people in a different way because... Mm -hmm. I mean, people will hear a song and they'll talk about the lyrics of the song. and But often it's the way the music glides with the lyrics that help it resonate with you. Whereas yeah. so, so, sometimes you can read a poem, even if you don't remember it. You know, some of the funniest poems I've ever read were on the inside of a toilet wall. But it, 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 
but they 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 leave a mark that they, they, they leave something with you they make you think they make you know they, they, they make you chuckle or they make you feel yeah. sad or sad or remorse and, and words have yeah. that power yes i have a, a a friend i don't see him much we were classmates at university uh, and uh he's been a faithful reader of my work all along but he's forever saying well you you, you have to write uh uh, novels. Well, I have written one and I have another one coming out this spring, but uh, I've been principally a poet. He said, you know, poet, poetry doesn't reach many people. I want you to write a novel where a lot of people will hear your voice. And I said, well, you know, I, I write poetry mostly because it's what I do. Uh, mm. as a way of making sense of an otherwise, otherwise desultory life like anybody's. Uh, and I said, nobody's ever memorized a novel, have they? Yeah, and uh, that came from I don't know where that thought came from, uh, but I I thought about it, and it's and it's true. That's one virtue of uh, uh, of poetry that if it's well wrought, not necessarily that you're going to memorize it, but it will be memorable as a small unit uh, in some way. Uh, and uh, I rather like that. Yeah, I do. That that that's I I like that because somebody. That there's something about a poem that can it can the the poem you read earlier about being a child watching your parents with a new hi-fi and then you your brothers and your sisters all watching them basically being romantic and dancing and gliding and cheek to cheek and again and but then there's the the child's reference of I don't know why they're dancing to a song about a creek and fishing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. you know, and the, the, there's so much. The, the, yeah, there's so many dynamics going on all at once. Yes, it's, well, that's one of the things that I I tended to bring to those community libraries. I said that one of the thing that intrigues me about poetry, both as reader and writer, is the fact that it's a vehicle in which a number of ideas, uh, some in fact contradictory of one another, can, <clears throat> be, can be presented without sounding like a total muddle. Uh, and I, and the one example I used was uh, Frost's famous poem, The Road Not Taken, uh, and when yep. uh, people trot that out at retirement dinners and graduation ceremonies, you know, the rugged New Englander, independent, uh, completely overlooking lines in the poem, like you know, uh, um, you know, I took the other as just as fair though. Uh, 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 as for where the passing there had warned them, really about the same. Uh, yeah, and each was, you know. Uh, 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 so that's overlooked, but the fact is, he he's saying there, and at the end he says, "I shall be saying this with a sigh." Somewhere ages, ages hence, I will be saying this with a sigh. Two roads diverge in the wood, and I, I chose the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Well, you know, uh, I, there's a number of ways in which you can take that. I mean, it could be, and they'll buy it. And they did, in fact. <laughs> uh, they'll buy that as a kind of a testimony of, uh, of uh, uh, independence. But uh, 
there was some whimsy involved in that so-called choice too. I mean, I just I could have. Uh, they were worn equally about the same. Uh, but you come to the end of that poem, and, and what he's really doing is saying, you know, ponder these opposites. Uh, uh, what do you make of it? You know, uh, what, how does that relate to your uh, 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 life? And I uh, I like that uh, about poetry. There's another poem by a, a late American poet named James Wright, who was very good, I thought. And uh, it's called uh, Autumn Comes in Martin's Ferry, Ohio. Martin's Ferry, Ohio is in the kind of the, the mining belt of the state of Ohio. And that's where, uh, that's where um, uh, Wright was from. And, uh, and he talks about being in the Shreve High football stadium, American football, mind you. Uh, 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 on, on an autumn day, and he he looks around and he looks at the uh, 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 he looks at the the town in which he lives, which is uh, uh, filled with uh, uh, you know broken people working in the mines. Even the the black night watchman is ruptured. He has a rupture and so on. And uh, and at the end of the poem, he says, and and for all these reasons. Their sons grow suicidally beautiful and gallop ferociously against each other's bodies. Well, you, the, the simple thing is to say, you know, these poor people who can't get a break, uh, you know, in a society, uh, and they're spending all this time with football and spending money on it and so on. Uh, and that's a proper conclusion. On the other hand, where is the poet? He's in the Shreve high football stadium. So it's not that they, the sons grow suicidal. Uh, it's not that they grow beautiful, but they become suicidally beautiful, which is a really interesting yeah. uh, phrase which illustrates what I'm trying to talk about, I think. It, it, it is. So there's um, that uh, suicidally beautiful reminds me of... Do you remember the mass theme tune, Suicide is Painless? I'm sorry. The which? Do, do you remember the um, the Vietnam uh, comedy Mash, the American? Oh yeah. Yes, do you yes, remember I the do. theme tune? Suicide is painless. Yes, I do. I do. Uh, and I've forgotten that. That's very relevant. It seems to me. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, that when you, if people ever listen to the lyrics of that song, and it talks about how time gets into your skin and it catches up with you in the end, and you just like. And that's like you say, that suicide, suicidally beautiful. As soon as you said that, that, that popped into my head. Is... Thanks for mentioning that because I, I want to go back and, and look at the lyrics. And of course, in the, uh, in the TV series, they just played it instrumentally. But uh, I do remember once reading the lyrics, and I, I'm going to go back to looking at that. Oh, yeah, the, 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 the lyrics to that song are very deep, very powerful because. You, you realize, you know, just exactly what they're talking about. Right, right. You know, because like you say, you can get carried away with the, as I was saying earlier, you, if, if, if the, if a tune if, uh, or a soundtrack is phenomenal enough or catches your heart enough, you can ignore, ignore the lyrics, even if you've, and when I say you ignore the lyrics, you might be able to recite the lyrics, but you've never listened to them. You've never understood what they were trying to tell you. But you, well you, yes. 
and and yeah so when i hear that song and the the the, the lyrics to that song it, it's um yeah it's it's, it's about how time it, it's going to kill all of us in the end so and it almost doesn't matter where you die it's um it's a very deep deep song um so we'll, we'll just change the mood now um, one of the things um just how many books have you actually written in total uh well if you i have uh the, well I've, with this new book of creative nonfiction, that would make 24 and then i have a novel coming out in the spring uh which would make it 25 but di didn't you say earlier you wrote some books on of essays yes i did uh so i think uh i think let me think i think this this is my sixth book of same i believe that would make 22 and then i have a it's not quite a scholarly book uh it's it it, it has literary essays in it but i, I hope it's not academic it's not heavily annotated or, mm. uh, or sort of, but it uh, it kind of rehearses my relationship to poetry and other kinds of literature uh, over the years so that would make 24 and uh, if my math is right I have to look at my own curriculum vitae sometimes to kind of keep things keep yeah. things straight it's becoming a a problem as I age, my short-term memory is not what it, what it was. And I say, well, I said that in a poem, but which book was it in? <laughs> I, you know, and I have to rustle around and, uh, and find it. But uh, at any rate, uh, yeah, well, I've done a lot of writing. It's just, and I've never, you know, people say, well, you must be marvelously disciplined. There's no discipline at all involved. I mean, it's what I love to do. The discipline is what used to be involved. Uh, especially when the children were small, go pick up the kids at school, go grocery shopping. <laughs> that tear yourself away from this thing that is so pleasurable to you to do the uh, the normal quotidian things that anybody does. Well, that's quite interesting, then, is it? Because one of the common questions that, and you know, and I'm I also ask this question is, you know, what's the writing process, and how how do you sit down and discipline? But if you enjoy it, it's how do you pull yourself away to do the day to day things that. You survive with. It's interesting because uh, you know, over the years, I've I've met scores and scores of uh, aspirant young uh, poets, and uh, the the ones who have succeeded, and some have succeeded rather brilliantly, uh, are the ones for whom there appeared to be no substitute uh, for writing, um, and and so they persisted, and I think their persistence is important as, uh, as what we call talent. Uh, case in point, uh, I think the single most gifted uh, uh, student I ever had was a young woman from the state of Oregon. And she just, she could write rings around anybody her age. I mean, she was terrific. She went off and married her high school sweetheart and took over uh, his father's Chevrolet agency. And, uh, uh, and, uh, I wrote to her and I said, uh, you know, uh, you're such a good writer. Why have you just given it up altogether? And she said, well, yes, it was great fun in college and so on, but uh, it's not really something I want to spend a lot of time 
uh, doing now. I have, in effect, uh, I have other fish to fry. Uh, and uh, there's nothing morally reprehensible about that, but it's very interesting that, uh, uh, whereas another uh, writer who's quite a famous novelist now named Louise Erdrich, she was just not going to be denied. She just kept writing and writing. And like everybody else in her younger years, she was rejected right, left, and center. Uh, but then she, she just persisted, and now she's, uh, well, she won a Pulitzer Prize, put it that way. Yeah. So I'm just going to uh, finish with one last question, and it's completely different. If, if you can imagine you could go anywhere in the world, any time, any place, any time, where would you go? What car would you be driving, and what music would you be listening to? That's a big question, David. <clears throat> you know, I tell you, uh, in my in my older age, uh, I've fallen in love with the, the nation of Slovenia, part of the old uh, Yugoslavia. Yep. Uh, as it happened, I in uh, I, I I made a friend, a, a lovely. Uh, brilliant, very funny man who was uh, in the State Department uh, in Budapest that year that I was there. And uh, 10 years later, he said, why don't you come back and we'll do a reading. I'll find a Hungarian writer to read with you. And uh, then you can stay with us for the Easter vacation. Uh, so I did that and it was uh, a pleasure. And then on the way to the airport, he said, would you like me to let the word out to my counterparts uh, that you're on this side of the pond and so on and so forth. I said, yes. And I went to a number of places, but uh, the capital of Slovenia, Ljubljana, I went to the, the Penn Club and uh, it's a huge audience. And uh, every, afterwards, people would walk up and say, well, uh, I am Victor, I too am poet, or uh, I am Natasha, I too am poet, and so on. And I said, you know, this is where poets go to go to die. Now, mind you, it's, it's, it's older as everywhere else but uh, I, uh, I became great friends with a man who translated my work for the occasion he had a daily 60 minute poetry show on the national radio I was on that and we became very very close friends uh, he kept finding I, I did him a favor because I knew Robert Frost's literary executive and uh, I got uh, Robert Frost's publisher to waive exorbitant uh, republication uh, for the 50 poems that he had translated. And he kept finding reasons uh, to invite me back. So I think I've been there. I must have been there 16, 17 times, including this past October, because he was having some health issues that worried me. But it's such a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful little nation, uh, ultra civilized, uh, and, uh, and uh, very sympathetic to poetry. So it's, uh, uh, it's a win-win-win uh, across the board. Uh, I'd like to, if, if I had encountered the country younger, I think I would have tried to learn that language because uh, I, I've become so fond of so many people there in addition to their sort of general cultural welcome to what I do. Um, and what music would I be listening to? Well, I'm, 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 I'm a, a jazz fan principally. Uh, I'd be probably playing old uh, I'm so quaint that I have CDs. In fact, I even have a record. Uh, I'd be playing musicians from what's called the late Bop era, uh, Thelonious Monk, Sonny Rollins, uh, 
Max Roach, uh, uh, Miles Davis, uh, what have you. And what would I be driving? I don't know, whatever was available from the credit card agency, I suppose. Uh, uh, last time I didn't drive anything because uh, <clears throat> my friend's uh, daughter, who's a well-known opera singer in the country, uh, she kind of took over and drove me every place I wanted to go. So that was, uh, uh, drove me and my wife because we were there together. It's perfect. Thank you very much for your time. It's really appreciated. Well, I've really enjoyed it very much, David, and uh, Godspeed. Thanks again. And there you have it, Sidney Lee. I'm fascinated by how prolific writers write, and for Sidney, it was no exception. He just he just loves doing it, and I suppose it is that simple. Genuinely, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please do check out the links below. Go and find Sidney, read his work, see what else he's done. And as always, please like, subscribe, share, and wherever you are, whatever you believe, please take care. Thank you for listening.